This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Daniel Schreider, a combat veteran and mental health counselor. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network resource of the week, the Pikes Peak United Way. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and your family. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to share a bit of news. Change is constant and often unwelcome, but hopefully this change will be an easy one. In the upcoming weeks, I'll be handing off the hosting duties of this show to my guest today, Daniel. It's been great to be able to share these conversation and insights and to hear from folks who want to learn more about mental health and wellness in the military-affiliated population. The format of the show will change slightly. We're going to focus more on each week's preferred guest with a longer interview, although we'll still feature the Homefront Military Network resource of the week at the end of each show. You can continue to contact us at militarymind at fccsprings.com and continue to hear the show each week on KPPF and your podcast player of choice. As I mentioned, today's interview segment is with Daniel Schreider, who you'll hear from shortly. Daniel's coming on board the Family Care Center as a community programs manager and is going to be carrying the show into the future. A Marine and Army Green Beret, Daniel brings a unique blend of lived experience and clinical training, as well as a desire to change the way that we think and talk about mental health. I can think of no one better to help us take a look inside the military mind. Let's get into my conversation with Daniel and come back afterwards to hear about this week's Homefront Military Network resource of the week. Uh, so as I mentioned in the introduction, we'll be making a transition here in a couple of weeks in which you'll be taking over as host of Inside the Military Mind. I think that it'd be helpful for the audience to hear a little bit about you and your background. Yeah. So I was uh, born and raised in Elko, Nevada. I'm the youngest of six kids. Joined the Marines at 19. And honestly, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I thought I was just getting a job. So I <laughs> did two combat tours with the Marine Corps. Uh, I was in from 2001 to 2005. Um, shortly after getting out, my son was born and uh, life was difficult on the outside. We were going to school, bought a house um, and ran into some hiccups with, you know, money with the bills for helping us with Connor, like Medicaid. And I was surprised. I said, Are you, this is this is really hard. I got I bought a house. We're both in college. I'm a veteran. Like, shouldn't we get some support? And apparently we made a little bit too much for that support. And I said, well, I'm really good at the military stuff and I enjoyed it. So let's go back in the military. And I weighed a few options and I decided that if we were gonna make a long career out of it, that we chose the army. And I've always been a little bit bigger, so I'm telling people I'm gonna join the army and go special forces. And they're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> whatever you say. And I said, okay. So joined back in 2007, uh, I was stationed with the 101st Airborne Division, did a combat tour with them. Um, all my work was infantry work in the military. 
team leader uh, for actually all three tours. Kind of started over when I hit the Army, had to prove myself again. And then I went to selection and I got selected, went through the Q course with no recycles and um, ended up here in Fort Carson in 10th group. And I was ODA 0435. It was a dive team. And by that point in my career, I had a pretty big head. Started to drink some of that Kool-Aid of being the top 1%. And, uh, and I'll tell you a story about one training cycle that I wasn't able to complete. And, and the reason is because it ties into kind of how I got here. But it was dive school. First time I got sent to dive school. And i uh, done a lot of swimming. Always been good at swimming. Not so good at pull-ups and running, but I could swim. <laughs> and got dropped off in the ocean. That's the first time I've really done ocean swimming and it's a completely different monster. And, and they, you know, Hey, if you touch the boat, you're done. Touch the boat. <laughs> Cause I thought I was going to die. So anyways, I got another chance to go back to that school, being on a dive team and you only get a few chance. And then they're like, Hey, we need you to be on a different team. If you can't achieve your combat dive bubble. And I went back to the course and, and here's the important part. My family and I were struggling at this point. And um, when I went back to that course, I said, man, it's, a, it's either a body bag or a dive bubble. That was my attitude. And my wife said, you know, you've uh, you've been starved, been beat up, walked the skin off your feet. And she says, you put all that effort into the military and you never put that much effort into our family. And uh, of course, at the time I shrugged it off and I was like, gotta get my dive bubble, I gotta go. You know, so I went to the training, accomplished the mission. I got my dive bubble and came back and, and went on my uh, first deployment with 10 Special Forces Group. It was a training deployment. And it was during that deployment that my wife went home, we separated, uh, the family was falling apart. And a few months later, I'd caused an incident and I was done with the military. So then, then I was in an immediate transition where I was planning on a lifelong career of at least 20 years. I was in my 10th year of service and, uh, and then I was done. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. I, I think it's in really looking at that military career and, and we'll get to a little bit about how things have changed after that, but it's always interesting when we're talking about why people join the military. And, and, and so looking back at that, why the Marines, as opposed to one of the other branches of service, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then not that in the Marine Corps, you really had a choice of doing what you're doing. Right. But, <laughs> But, but why make those, those choices that you did, at least initially joining the military? So uh, there, was, there was three reasons for the Marines. Uh, the first was uh, my now wife. I was interested in dating her and her cousin was going to join the Marines. So he actually just said, hey, let's, I'm going to go join the Marine Corps. Why don't you come along because you need a job? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> like I said, pretty naive. And then we got there and he was looking at multiple services. He wanted to be a heavy equipment operator. So he was kind of weighing things out. And um, so that was number one, uh, needed the job was number two. And then the third one, the Marines was, uh, it sounds a little crazy, but I walked in and it was one of those four service uh, mm -hmm. recruiting stations. And I said, well, which one to use the hardest? And everybody's like, well, the Marines. And so I went in the Marines, <laughs> said, what's the hardest job in the Marines? And they said, the infantry. I'm like, I'll take it. And they're like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I just figure if I can do this really difficult job, then I can do any job in the Marine Corps was how I saw it. <laughs> Now, looking back on, I'm like, yeah, I could see where I looked a little crazy. <laughs> so that's how I ended up Marine infantry. I wanted to do the hardest thing to prove to myself um, that I could do it. And then in that time and those two deployments, we know one in 05. I mean, that was the beginning of the global war on terror and, and events in Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, and those were some some very early but very significant conflicts. But then you get out. Why the decision to get out? Um, and then very quickly get back in. So 
like I said, I did enjoy the work. I, I loved the deployment. It was difficult. Um, and I was part of the invasion. So it was, it was, um, an interesting time. It was difficult. We lost a lot of Marines, uh, during that time. And, um, but when we got back, I still like, man, I, I enjoy the work. I enjoy the work. Um, I enjoy training and, and being on those deployments was kind of that justification of that training. Like you got to prove yourself in actual combat. So that was something that, um, I think everybody that joins the infantry is looking for to prove themselves on the actual battlefield. Doesn't matter how much training we do. You really want to test your metal. Um, the reason I got out is because I was uncertain what to do with my life, you know, just like I got in kind of, well, it's a job. Uh, uh, my son was about to be born. I looked at our, our, uh, deployment temp, tempo and I thought, man, if, if I stay in, at least with this unit and it didn't look like I was moving anywhere anytime soon, I wasn't going to be there for my son's birth. And so I said, well, I'm not a hundred percent on staying in, but I definitely know I want to be there for my son. So we got out and our plan was to stay out. Um, and I actually did a few courses in criminal justice and very quickly realized that was not the path for me. <laughs> um, and, and like I said, things got difficult. We were struggling, um, looked for assistance and, and kind of struggled with that and thought, you know, I'm still able body. I did really enjoy the work. My wife was an incredible uh, military spouse. She enjoyed the life. I mean, we, we enjoyed, uh, moving and the adventures and all the people we met and, and all that. So we decided to, to join back up and, and once again, I was actually at a friend's wedding and, and, uh, I think it was the father-in-law or the father of the bride comes up to me and he's like, what's wrong with you? I said, well, excuse me. Like who starts a conversation like that? And he said, two combat tours, you know, he came back in one piece. Like, why would you sign up to go again? And I said, well, sir, I'm pretty good at my job and I feel comfortable on the battlefield. And honestly, if you can be calm on the battlefield, you can bring people home alive. And I said, so maybe I'm a little crazy, but that's why I'm going back. And I think there's that, uh, it's interesting, this double transition, right? You got out and you spent a couple of years. And at that point in 2006, 2007, there weren't anywhere near the resources for transitioning veterans as there were now. I mean, we didn't no. think that it was going to be a 20 year conflict at that point. Um, and you were struggling in your transition at that point. And so it's a matter of, well, I know how, what the temperature of the water is. So I'm just going to jump back in the water and, and feel comfortable again. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And so then there's the transition out the second time and the transition out the second time was not deliberate or as, um, as well planned as you had it the first time. And so there was challenges there transitioning, but also just personally. Mm -hmm. So would you like me to talk about leaving that? Yeah. So, yeah. So, like I said, I was, I was, um, planning on being a lifer and doing at least the 20, if not more, um, I had worked my way into special forces, got on the dive team, had my dive bubble. And, you know, according to everybody in that culture, I was the, the 1% of the 1% or so once again, pretty full of myself, um, dedicated to the military so much so that I let my family go home, um, and chose the military over them. And that final deployment, obviously I was hurting, whether I was recognizing it at the time or not, I was still pretty emotionally closed off. Um, had an alcohol related incident early in the deployment, got put on restriction. And again, this is a training deployment and I was an 18 Bravo. So I was running all the ranges. So I was like, well, we 
training needs to continue. Um, kind of worked my way back into good graces with the command. And um, I actually asked to come home. I asked to come home and, and help work on my family and be there for them. Um, what I didn't realize at the time, I hadn't quite accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic. And uh, proof of that would be that the chain of command approved, yeah, you can go home and we're gonna put this money together and we're gonna fly you home to be with your family. And my alcoholic brain says, well, you better go out for one last drink before you go home and you gotta play nice. Um, one last drink. No one was hurt, which uh, I think that was the grace of God, but um, ended my career that night, all in a 24-hour period. Uh, ended my career, was kicked off the team. You know, I knew I was getting chaptered, uh, dropped to the bottom of the food chain with the, the unit, um, embarrassed myself and my team and the chain of command, um, all in the span of about 12 hours. Um, so we got back to the... Um, states. We we had a follow-on mission. As soon as we landed, we offloaded everything. That's when Sergeant Major gave us the news that, hey, your entire team is not doing the follow-on mission. You're going home. So we got back to the states, and I went through the process of 45 days of restriction, everything, the, the Article 15, um, the charges were laid on me. And then it was two months. So I went from, I'm staying in for the next, you know, 11, 12 years to I'm on the street in two months with a, with a chapter and a letter saying, you know, don't come back on Fort Carson or you're in big trouble. Um, so that was, that was an incredible time because I was also reconnecting with all my emotions. A lot, a lot of things happened in that 12 hour span. I would say that I was wide awake finally. I wasn't uh, closed off to anything and I was feeling a lot of things and I was understanding what was going on and I embraced um, getting out. But to your point, absolutely uh, shortchanged on a few of the things that were offered. So it was neat to see all those, even, even though I did it in two months, there was still, you know, the classes and the education piece of like, here's, here's some of the things available to you out in the world. Um, which we didn't get the first time. The first time I was signed this paper and we'll see you later. You know, um, So it was still a quick exit, but I did see some of those resources and I, I got with the DAV and went through and, and you know, um, did a VA claim, um, a quick one and still wasn't, you know, exactly f understanding how all those things worked. Um, I was really focusing on staying sober, getting into AA out in town. I was currently, those last two months that I was in, I was uh, in the Army Substance Abuse Program. So I was AA out in town, Army Substance Abuse Program counseling. You know, uh, my world was opening up. I was starting to realize that, you know, if you ignore your emotional state and push everything down for 30 years, uh, there's quite an eruption when it all comes out. So, And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize um, is is really the the overarching impact of everything, right? I mean, three combat tours, two of which were in the beginning of of the conflicts. One is a, a marine. Even in 2000, you know, seven, 2008, the early you know parts of the surge. Um, those are all challenges. I mean, those you don't go through those without getting a couple of dents in the fender. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a sergeant major tell me one time is uh, sometimes the donkey needs an axe handle between the eyes to get their attention. Right. He was talking about me. I think. <laughs> was the donkey was he was particularly talking about but there's that piece of the signs are so much there that sometimes some of us and I, I talk about us as veterans or service members really need something humongous to go wrong in our life to say we should get help now rather than doing it earlier absolutely unfortunately that is the case with most military veterans male female doesn't matter we are in in the warriors ethos and the warriors training it is 
such a perceived weakness to talk about your feelings or talk about struggling when, you know, you lost someone. And when I tell my story, I, I joke with people. I says, you know, it's a drinking culture, right? You lose a friend, you drink, you got a barbecue, you drink, a baby's born, you drink. Like that's how we celebrate. That's how we cope. That's how we do all these things. And, um, there was a lot of good memories with that, of course, you know, but over the years they start getting darker and darker. And like you said, those deployments start creeping up and the things that you're not, and then it's not drinking to celebrate. You're drinking because you're running away from things. Um, in my own personal story, I brought things to the military, you know, so there was some, some wounds that I endured as a child and I brought that into the military. So it was very easy for me to accept alcohol as the way to be like, oh, you know, all that pain you've been carrying around, you don't need to feel that anymore. And here it's widely accepted. This is how we do things. So I said, oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, four years in the Marine Corps, it was blacked out drinking every weekend for four years, you know, totally acceptable. That's, that's how we did it. Then when I transitioned into the army, my wife was, Hey, let's not drink as much. And so of course I'm like, Oh yeah, absolutely. So I won't drink around you. That's sure. You bet. <laughs> I'm going to cut it in half. Yeah, I'll cut, of the time. cut it in half. I just won't drink around you. That'll, that'll work out great. That does not work out great. But the fact is I was still not willing to deal with the roots and my roots were much deeper than the military. In a way, psychologically speaking, it protected me somewhat on combat tours because prior to getting there, I was already emotionally disconnected. You know, so what I saw, I saw um, other men on the battlefield that struggled with what we were seeing. And I was just so emotionally dead. I was like, but this is our job. What's your problem? I'm like we're moving on, dig the hole. We'll go and then dig the next one and the next one and the next one. And I didn't feel anything that was happening until years later, you know, when I got out, started to, started to work on my own emotions and then, and then it came back pretty strong. <laughs> so you tend to get them all at once if you ask for them. So, and so, and that's something that, that engaging in your own recovery, engaging in your own sobriety, that was part of your journey. And, and obviously you could have done that, but that wasn't all of your journey. Like me, you went from being a service member into being a veteran, working on your own recovery, but then taking that next step to be a mental health professional in, in, you know, you were in the infantry. I was not a mental health professional. Why have you chosen the mental health field as a post-military career? It's a good question. Um, People ask me that a lot, uh, especially we have, um, like I said, the invasion was pretty intense and we, and we still have every five years we have a reunion where those units come back together um, and we honor those that we lost and those that we've continued to lose um, since the battle. And I went back to, the, I didn't go to the 10 year because I was new to recovery and I'm like, man, I can't go hang out with my Marine buddies. I was within the first year not drinking and I said, I just know it's, it's not going to be good, not strong enough yet. But we did have an opportunity to go to the 15 year reunion. And I was asked to stand in lieu of a chaplain and, and say a prayer to dedicate the benches. So for my buddies that I served with, for them to see, I was known as Frank the Tank in the Marine Corps because of how, how much and how excessively I drank. To see me saying a prayer to dedicate the benches to the fallen soldiers and Marines that we lost on that day, um, it shook a lot of them. They're like, what, what happened? I truly believe that the counseling field and the career uh, find you, you don't find it. I started with school in 2014. And again, it was honestly part of it. A big part of it was survival. We needed um, the GI Bill money and the, and the stipend to live. At the time, we were working with men's group and pastoring at a church with a very low income. And so that was going to help. Um, so I went into ministry thinking, hey, I'm working at a church. Um, we'll go in and get my ministry degree. But I was still wrestling with the fallout of the decisions I made and my addictions in the military. So I was still seeking counsel at school at Nazarene Bible College. 
And as I was going through my counseling, one of the counseling sessions, uh, the counselor looks at me and goes, are you passionate about being a pastor? I said, well, no, everybody thought it'd be a good fit. And he's like, it's not really something. I was something. just looking for a job. Yeah, just like, there's a theme here. Here I am just looking for a job. And he goes, you ever thought about counseling? And I said, well, people said that might be good too. And he said, well, we'll think about it. And so I went home and talked with my wife about it. And I said, you know, counseling, that, that was a one part of when I was pastoring at the church that I really enjoyed was sitting with these guys and sitting with couples and, and helping them through tough times. So I said, yeah, I think it'd be a great fit. Uh, when I transitioned into counseling, a bunch of credits came from the military and like, oh, hey, all your electives are done. So I said, oh, that looks like a confirmation that we went made the right turn, you know, started our cohort. And in the first night in class, we did what's called a fishbowl. So two people go in the center, one's the counselor and one's the client. And I raised my hand thinking I'd be the, the client because I was like, man, I really want to work through my stuff. And he's like, all right, you'll be the counselor. I was like, nope, nope, didn't volunteer for that. Not ready for that. But I sat across from my classmate and we had a really powerful session and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And I went home that night and I just broke down in tears to my wife. And I said, well, I found it. And she said, found what? And I said, I enjoyed, I loved serving in the military and I loved the infantry. And I said, but I never felt like it was it. And I said, this is it. Never in my life have I felt something like this. Then come to find out you got to follow on your bachelor's to a master's degree. And then there's some other requirements. And I thought, boy, this is a longer trip than I signed up for, but uh, we're going to keep going that direction. So I did not, I, I think I took the summer off between the bachelor's and the master's just logistically, it didn't work out. Um, but I've carried on through and I'll be graduating from Colorado Christian University this December with a degree in clinical mental health counseling. So that's that's how I like I said, the field found me, I think. <laughs> and, and you and I have known each other for heck, I don't know, five years, 2013, 2014, yeah. you know, so maybe even seven years. Uh, but this and we had talked about this a couple times on your journey. And, and I really feel that one, your military background, but also your lived experience can really be beneficial for service members, veterans who have that same kind of similar background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of times, um, and, and this is all things I had to learn as well, um, especially primarily for uh, infantry. I mean, anybody that serves in group and, and, and they're that much like... Uh, they get this idea that they're just a trigger puller. And and so they get out of the military and number one, they've just lost a major identity. Like you're a service member. That's that's not a job. That's who you are. And that's what I learned over the years that I wasn't joining the Marine Corps was so much larger than I, it was not just a job. Mm -hmm. um, it was a family. And honestly, at my darkest times, those guys were the ones that reached out to me. We hadn't talked in, in years and they were the ones that reached out and said, hey man, like, you need to snap out of this. Like you're making some bad decisions. And of course I got angry with them at the time. And a few years later I called and apologized and Hey, you were, you were right. Um, but getting out, it's not just a job. It is who you are. When I got out, I was a Marine and they're like, well, what are you going to do for work? And I'm like, mm, does anybody need me to shoot anybody? Cause I'm real good at infantry stuff. You know, um, what I didn't realize, and it took some time and it took counsel from you, Dwayne and several other people to say, Hey, communication skills, organization, you can plan, you can build things, you can organize things. Uh, there's an incredible amount of skills that cross from the military over. And, and we have this, this stigma and this idea that I just, I'm just a trigger puller. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's amazing. There's an amazing amount. I mean, 90% of your infantry skills transfer into the real world. They got to be buffed down and refined a little bit. Right. And you got to learn a few new skills uh, to, to engage with the world, but the building blocks are all there. 
And over the years, it helped me realize how much stuff that I had gotten from the military that does transfer into the world. I'm not sure if that answered your question. But. Well, and I think, but it, but it does in, in really being able to make that transition. But then there's the, the difficulty that we have. So for example, you, in 2005, you may not have been necessarily dealing with the, the long-term impacts of those two deployments, but there was still the other stuff around it right. um, with that transition. Um, as both veterans and mental health professionals ourselves, we can see some of these problems and difficulties in talking about mental health specifically outside of that transition stuff, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that are, that are related to mental health for the military affiliated population? Uh, stigma is the big one. Um, I've, I've seen just in the time that I got out in 2012, an incredible increase in advocacy work and knowledge and helping soldiers and veterans and Marines and everybody transitioning out that, hey, you go in and asking for some help is not weakness, right? The education Part of it is huge and getting people on posts and getting people talking during those transition and all the nonprofits that are working to help them understand that. And, and you and I have seen it. We're starting to see soldiers prior to retirement, right? They're coming to get help knowing that, hey, I don't want to tell anybody else, but retirement really scares me. I don't know who I am. I've been 20, 21 years in the military and to see that uh, it scares me. Like what's out there? Who am I when I leave here? So to see them coming on the front end a year or two prior to transitioning and preparing for that, that tells me that it's working. When I got out and I was going through ASAP and it was a, it was a fast track, but that opened my eyes to my event over on that deployment was big. <laughs> it was, I got the ax handle right between the eyes. And so I was completely open to anything. And I was like, you know, 30 years of keeping secrets and hiding in plain sight led me here to a split up family and me losing something that I love, which is my military career. I don't want to do that anymore. So I don't know what it looks like, but I'm just not going to hide anymore. So then seeing other soldiers going through the same thing, but still be in denial. They can be in ASAP. Their family can be gone. They could be getting kicked out of the military and you'll talk to them and be like, hey, man, like you're going to get some help on the outside. Hey, no, no, just need to get out and get back to work. And I don't really have a problem with drinking. It was just these two or three, you know, incidences. Um, and helping them understand sitting in that room, I, I shared with them, I said, you know, go out when you get out to town, you're off restriction. I said, go to an AA meeting. And I said, you will find yourself surrounded by warriors, not the warriors that we think in the military that have gone all these combat deployments, all this high speed training and all that stuff. But these are people that have been kicked down, beat down, addicted and, you know, retreaded, meaning they, they, they've been sober for a period of time and they fall and then they get sober for a period of time and they fall and they keep coming to the meetings and they keep staying in the fight. And I said, man, I sat in that room and I just, I just shed tears because I looked around the room and thought these are warriors. You know, I had another mentor of mine ask my wife, she, we were out to dinner and he said, why was it so hard for Daniel to admit that he had a problem with alcohol? <laughs> to be honest, I was a little confused. I'm like, yeah, why, why was that? Um, but he said, you admitting you have a problem with alcohol is admitting that it's stronger than you mm -hmm. and warriors don't do that. Um, so it's a paradox. They, they think that admitting that they need help is a sign of weakness when actually it's a sign of strength. And the easiest way to prove that to them is, hey, how many people are engaging in this? If it was a simple, easy thing to do, everybody would be, I mean, we'd be pushing down the doors in these mental health services, but it's not. It's a very hard thing to do to look in the mirror and say, what needs to change in me and how do I need to get healthier? Back to the dive school comment. My wife, before I left, asked me not to drink. 
And I was convinced at the time because I'd made so many mistakes over the years and I was running from my pain and I was coping in all these negative, unhealthy ways. And I said, well, you just, we just need to split up and, and you need to be with someone that's, that's better, better for you and the kids. And at that time we had two kids, Connor and Josie. And, and she looked me square in the eyes and she said, we don't need anyone better. We need you better. And of course, at the time I said, well, that's, it's not possible. So sorry. <laughs> and that's the difference between where I was then and where I was not even six months later, where I was feeling it, I was seeing all the pain I'd caused in my addictions and hiding from emotions and things like that. And I also had started that journey and went, oh my gosh, you know, you get, if you think going and seeing a counselor and getting help is easy, go and do it. And so many people have turned around and they're like, I've had 10 deployments, combat deployments. None of them were as hard as sitting in this room and talking to you, but it's good. And so that's where I think it is, is really just helping them understand that uh, just like when we go in the military, we do not have all the tools in the tool bag that we need. And that's why we go to boot camp, and that's why we do follow on training. And that's why we go to schools so that when we hit the ground in a combat zone, we know what to do, we know how to do it, and we have contingencies for when things don't go right. And then we get out in the world and we've got all these wounds, and a lot of them are internal wounds, but we don't have the tools to deal with it. And that's where education, advocacy work, like all these nonprofits, that's why it's incredible to see how much more is already in place. And we need to continue to build that transition to be like, hey, we need to give you some tools to get out there and, and education on what counseling is and what it can do for you and your family. I mean, just teaching you communication skills, how to reintegrate into the family, a safety brief saying, hey, integrate into your family softly is well, we need a few more details in that, right? That's like uh, babies come without a training manual. It's the same thing. We come back into the home and, and my son would ask for something. I'd say, yeah, go ahead. And then he'd look at my wife and go, is, is it okay? Because she was the authority. He wasn't meaning to cause injury or insult to my ego, to Connor. He was, she's the boss, right? She, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, and then he does it. I'm like, what? I'm standing right here. So those are things where it takes some humility. It takes some patience to transition in, uh, to working with your spouse again and, and understanding that your spouse has had control over so many things. You never want to barge back in and be like, oh, I'm taking, taking back control. So all those things need to be taught their skills. You know, and I think that's the big thing is they need to be learned because if they're not learned in an appropriate way, they're going to be learned in a harsh way. They're mm -hmm. going to be, you know, it's sooner rather than later. I mean, that that relationship may break up. But then if you're on your third or fourth marriage or something like that, right. um, and there's a pattern that's emerging and the one constant in the pattern is us and our disrupted relationships. That's one of the things a lot of veterans, that stigma keeps them from learning lessons that they need to learn to make that full transition from service member to veteran. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that is a very common theme. Um, even when we went to our reunion, that 15 year reunion, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard that story. I'm doing really well now, but this is my fourth wife, third, fourth set of kids spread across the country. But now I'm mellow. Now I understand how to communicate and that it's important and that we engage in and sometimes marriage counseling and things like that to learn the skills to cope. So you're right. Eventually the lessons learned. Um, but can we speed up that process? Absolutely. We need the willingness, but we also need the education piece to, to start pushing back against that. And I think that we've made some incredible, incredible leaps and bounds in just the last 10 years. And see, and that speaks to obviously the, the addiction piece, whether it is, you know, chronic pain with painkillers and stuff like that or, or alcohol and the drinking culture 
here. But what about the the non-medical part of the transition, right? You alluded to it a little bit, um, but sort of bridging that military-civilian divide between those who serve and those who haven't. Uh, coming from a military cult- culture, a lot of challenges that veterans experience aren't necessarily PTSD, TBI, or even substance use, uh, but things like just leaving that military culture, that identity that you referred to in, in sort of that finding a next mission, that meaning and purpose. Right. Absolutely. So my own story, it did happen abruptly, um, but I did have that stuck in my head that, well, what now? I can go do contract work because that's what everybody else does. But is that going to help my family? Is that going to help me? And I said, no, that's not it. So the transition was difficult and the consequences of the drinking and other addictions that I that I had during the military time were basically getting out and having such a kind of a low self-esteem, despite all the things you achieve in the military, you get out and you got this low self-esteem. You're like, well, I'm a trigger puller, so I don't have a lot of value. And as I said, it took several years, but I was unemployed for uh, a year and a half. Our home went into foreclosure. And a lot of people see us now and they're like, you guys are so happy and everything worked out great. And then we start sharing the details and they're like, oh my gosh, like that was, that was a really ugly transition. And it is that for so many people. And I have several friends, one of which was you know, 60% of his body was burned. It was in a mortar attack. His left elbow's welded into place. His ankle's welded. He only has limited mobility, scar tissue from them, not only where the burns were, now they're grafted, right? And we had a conversation. It was kind of an interesting one because he, he told me, he said, you know, from my point of view, he said, uh, they don't really take care of guys like you. And I said, well, that's, that's interesting. What do you mean? And he said, well, you're able-bodied. You know, you, you got out. You don't have major scars. You're not missing a limb. You don't have, you know, an elbow welded into place. And he said, they pay attention to me. They take care of me. The services are provided. The education is provided. They make sure that I'm in counseling and they made sure that my medical stuff was squared away. And, and he said, but, but you, you walked out of the door. And he said, a lot of times guys like you slip through the cracks. He's like, but I know you got some deep wounds on the inside. And I said, wow. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. And I didn't engage with the VA, right? I went through that quick process. They said, no, no, no. And I said, okay, roger that. And I just went on with life. Uh, and it wasn't actually until we crossed paths that you said, you might want to might want to talk to them some more. And a lot of things were discovered, not only physically, but on the inside as well. And, and then they were addressed and then there was help being provided. But I got out thinking, I don't need to push that because I have my limbs. Yeah. You know? I had a veteran one time. It's like, I've got 10 fingers and toes, right? I, I came back with everything. And there's that goes back to that stigma that we have against help seeking mm-hmm. is we see somebody in a wheelchair who's been catastrophically visibly injured. And we say, they deserve whatever they get more than I do. And that's another barrier that keeps veterans from seeking help. Yes. And once again, that's a very common narrative that they operate their lives by. And I did. I didn't engage with the VA until three years out. Turned out to be a lot more difficult to engage him at that time. Had I done it correctly, it would have been benefit to not only myself and services, but also to my family. But yeah, no, there, there's a lot of veterans that get out and they, and they will tell you point blank. I got guys missing this and doing that. I'm not, I'm not touching that because I don't need it. We have a tendency to rate our injuries and internal injuries and mental health seem to be low on the list. When in reality, if we could quantify, which we can't, but if we could quantify the internal injuries to the exterior, the external injuries, I believe we would go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is, the internal injuries are catastrophic and they're generational. 
and they're things that that cause massive wounds across the whole spectrum of injuries, relational communication, all those things. And and it would be startling if if we could document that. Um, helping these guys understand that those internal injuries are just as valid and need just as much attention as the physical ones that we sustain on the combat field would go a long way into helping guys out. And I actually use that analogy. You know, I said, hey, you, you get a scratch, takes a couple days, right? You break your leg or your leg gets blown off. How long is the recovery on that? Or you get shot, right? Months, months and months of recovery. Okay. And I'm like, so you, you got a wound when you were a child, and then you carried that wound into combat and sustained more wounds. And then you get out 30, 40 years into your life. And now you're ready to address those wounds. There's a time frame that we need to work through all this stuff. It is no different than a physical injury. It's just we can't see it. So it's a lot easier to hide and say that it's not a problem. So and I think, again, there's there's that benefit of of being able to have the lived experience and not. And we've had guests on the show and you'll talk to guests who, who are therapists that don't have the lived experience. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a place for both those clinicians like you with the military experience and the lived experience of recovery that can really reach a certain resistant veteran who's going to carry those wounds with them for years. Yes. And I have seen that. Um, some of my classmates challenged me on that in class, you know, because they uh, haven't had the same life experiences and, and hey, I want to work with with veterans. I'm like, man, that's awesome. That's incredible. That's great. <laughs> and then like, and I've actually had some ads, but can I, you know, and I'm and I was kind of taken back. I'm like, why wouldn't you be able to? And they said, well, well, you just immediately have this connection with them because you've lived that life and you understand it. And I said, well, yeah. So I got a wild card up my sleeve, you know. But if you're passionate about this culture, just like any other culture out there that, that mental health clinicians work with, you study and you learn and, and you learn about that culture and you read about it and you spend time with them and you engage with them. And if you're passionate about it, absolutely, you're going to be in powerful do I have one up on you? Yeah, because when it when a guy sits across from me or a lady, they go to share these horrific stories and they don't hesitate, right? That's the positive of, of my life experience is, and they all say it, they all actually state it like they gotta make sure it's okay. Like, I'm gonna tell you some horrific stuff, but I know you understand and you're okay because you've seen horrific stuff. And I say, yeah, lay it on me. That's one of the dangers of somebody's not being from that culture can be passionate about it, they can step into it, and they can very quickly be overwhelmed um, because of the stories that will come out in those counseling sessions and the detail, right? Most veterans that I've met are great storytellers. They will will give you the details. (laughs) So um, yeah, so life experience, um, and to your point, absolutely, there's a place for everybody in this field, Um, but it does help. It does help when they sit there and they know that, hey, I'm not going to scare this guy out of the room. That that goes a long way to that therapeutic alliance where they're like, okay, I'm going to trust you with stuff that I don't trust other people with. And it's an honored position to be in. And I think that's what's necessary for a lot of service members and veterans is to be able to have that trust. Mm-hmm. You're talking before about how the military gave us everything, but when you're out, you don't have all the, all the resources are there, but nobody's coordinating them for you, right? You don't have somebody saying that here's a checklist to live the rest of your life. Hey, be here 1500. And you're like, what? (laughs) There's, there is nobody sort of coordinate. So it's on the person to find those resources, but really trying to find somebody to trust with the, 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 the secrets of your life, so to speak, that can be so daunting to keep people away from seeking therapy. Right. And that leads into one of the other transition. Um, I don't want to call it a tendency, a pattern so to speak, isolation. 
mm-hmm. isolation. And, and I fell into that trap. I left the Marine Corps and then I joined the army. And then when I was out of the army, just cut the ties. I'm like, okay, that's in the past. A lot of people go back home. They go move in with their family because they have not planned or thought past that. You know, we, we live in the military in this day to day, one, one fire to the next fire or one chaotic situation to the next one. And we're comfortable in that environment and we can do long range planning in the military, but we don't necessarily do it in our lives. And so sometimes we end up getting out. And like you said, the resources are available, but getting to them can be overwhelming and not knowing about them can be, you know, I don't know what to do. And then that person's like, they throw their hands up and they're like, well, these, these systems are too complex. I'm going to buy some land and I'm going to go hide in the mountains, or I'm going to get my disability rating high enough that I don't need to work and I don't have to engage with the public and I'll just stay home. And that can be a real dangerous situation to be in, especially if you're struggling with some of those internal wounds is to be not engaging with people and to be with your mind all the time, right? Our minds never leave us. But we do see that a lot. And that's another part of this community outreach that like getting getting the word out. These services are available. And when you come into counseling and like you and I've talked about, some of our sessions are very focused on mental health. And then others, it's a bit more on the social work side of like, we got to get you into some of these programs that are going to help other areas of your life so that you can be more productive altogether. I'm just a piece of the puzzle, but we need to get these other ones in place so that you can be flourishing, you know, and it's that post-traumatic stress incline, right? Mm-hmm. so that they start climbing back out of the, the hole that they think they're in. They might not necessarily always be in, but it's how they perceive it. Absolutely. And I mean, I, and, and I always have appreciated how open you've been with your story because it is part of the, the whole person of who you are. And so we started this off saying that you're actually going to be taking over the hosting of this, this weekly show. And so I'm interested to hear, uh, what do you hope to see to come out of the community conversations that you're going to have moving forward? I think the two... You know, and I thought about this question before I got here, and and I think the two goals, trying to keep it simple, um, is basically getting the stories out there. So I know that everybody, like I said, I think this field of clinical mental health is it finds a lot of people. They don't necessarily, not not a lot of them find it, it finds them. And what that means is that they, a lot of them have stories of how they got here. And so a part of the show, my hope is, is that as we share our stories, and like I said, when I came back, I realized that my secrets were destroying me and they were destroying my family and they were gonna affect the next generation. If I didn't if I didn't do something, I was passing this pattern on to my kids and I was teaching them the same thing. Don't deal with it, just shrug it off, keep going. What do we need to accomplish for today and only look at today? Uh, and so hearing those stories, I hope that the community hears and understands like, oh, hey, that that's my story or I, I went through something similar to that. And now these people are helping other people. And so veterans that are transitioning, and I have a few clients right now that are already, hey, I know I'm not there yet, but I really want to reach back and start mentoring. Now we have some meaning and some purpose in life. And that will that will go a huge way in helping that veteran stay sober, stay off the streets, stay working to accomplish the goal of helping other veterans because now they got a mission, right? We serve in the military and that was again, something I didn't understand at the time until I was out until several years later. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was huge. What I what I was a part of was huge. And I had this, this mission, this honor, integrity and commitment, things that were so far beyond my understanding at the time. And then I get out and, and I lost that for a bit. I lost that meaning and that purpose. So that's the first goal is getting the stories out, getting the education out, helping people understand and normalize this and understand that those internal wounds are just as significant as the external wounds. And then the other part is education. So 
uh, doing the interviews with multiple different service providers. Once again, I was kind of the, the standard story. I got out and I had heard of a few organizations and I was like, well, you know, I'm not in anymore. I reached out to one. It didn't work out. And I was like, well, that was it. You know, and I, <laughs> I just went on trying to survive and live life. But interviewing different service providers, helping the community understand that they're there to help people and that the services are available. And not only that they're there, but how do we access those? Right. And I think this is a huge part or it's going to be going a long way to help that is when we interview them, hey, where are you at? How do people find you online? What number can they call? Right. These are all tools so that if somebody hears this show and they're suffering and it happens to be domestic violence and that's who we interviewed was a service provider that specializes in that. Hey, now I know who to call. Right. So I think I think getting the stories out, helping people connect with those stories and then educating the community on the services available, because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people here in Colorado Springs alone that are desperately trying to help. And we need to get the word out that they're there. I think one of the beneficial things that I have found as a practicing clinician is I see what my clients need, mm -hmm. but my client isn't the only one that needs that thing, right. that there are many others to do that in, in you continuing your clinical work as well as doing your outreach and education work, you can see what's unique, uniquely needed by one particular veteran, mm -hmm. but also understand that that veteran is, is indicative of a larger group of veterans. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, doing the clinical work, and it might have been an earlier conversation with you about seeing clients. I think I was asking you, how do you balance between the advocacy work and the clients? And, and you told me, you know, seeing the clients, that's where my heart lies. And the other half of my heart is in advocacy work. But continuing to see the clients, like you just said, is keeping a pulse on the community, on their needs, and as they change and transition, right? I mean, the military now is not the military you and I served in. And if we have clients that are currently in or transitioning out of, we're getting a current snapshot of what's going on and what the needs are as they you know, change over time. So yeah, absolutely. I think it helps us keep a pulse on what the community needs and helps us to engage with all these different service providers to say, yeah, here's what we need for these guys to help them get back into society and transition well. Well, I, I think that's great. I knew that uh, that you would be a, a good fill-in for me uh, as we transition as a host. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time today to share your story. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I am honored to uh, accept the position. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Daniel. I think you'll agree with me that the future of Inside the Military Mind is in good hands. We won't be parting ways quite yet as I'll be with you for several more shows, but I'm excited and encouraged about where we go from here. Have any feedback for us? We'd love to hear your thoughts if you drop us an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week, the Pikes Peak United Way. Pikes Peak United Way's mission is to enhance youth success and family stability in the Pikes Peak region by leading and lifting the most vulnerable in our community with mentorship, life resources, and real job opportunities. Their signature programs and partner agencies intently focus on connecting youth and their families to resources at the beginning of their life journey to ensure access to fundamental needs of food, shelter, and learning resources for all. Pikes Peak United Way achieves results by partnering with local nonprofits and business to help those in need in our community, their ability to tap into a wide array of resources through United Way's national network, and keeping efforts focused on local needs specific to the Pikes Peak region. Pikes Peak United Way works to improve education, income, and health for residents in the Pikes Peak region. The following are their key initiatives and programs that are designed to enhance youth success and family stability. These
these programs are 211, the Community Investment Fund, Success by Six, Colorado Springs Promise, Dolly Parton's Imagination Library, and Peak Progress, Quality of Life Indicators. Staffed by community resource experts, 211 is the free, confidential, and bilingual phone number that serves residents of 12 counties in Southern Colorado, helping those in need navigate the complex and ever-growing maze of health and human service providers in their community. At present, trained information specialists staff the hotline from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday using a comprehensive database of thousands of resources, including federal, state, and local government agencies, private nonprofits, as well as faith and community-based organizations. You can get help by calling 211 or visiting ppunitedway.org forward slash get dash help. The United Way also provides free food distributions. On the first and third Thursday of every month, they partner with Care and Share to provide hundreds of families with free food. In response to COVID-19, distributions are drive-up style. Pikes Peak United Way asks you to please remain in your car and follow traffic instructions from volunteers when you arrive. Guests who walk or take the bus will have a separate line to receive food. Food distribution days are located at Centennial Elementary School on the second Saturday of the month and Sierra High School on the first and third Thursdays of the month from 9.45 a.m. until the food runs out. Through their Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program, Pikes Peak United Way, in partnership with the Internal Revenue Service, works to move people towards greater economic sufficiency by providing free income tax preparation assistance to individuals and families with household incomes of $57,000 a year or less. In addition, VITA helps taxpayers obtain eligible tax credits and valuable deductions such as the Earned Income Tax Credit, the Child Tax Credit, Education Tax Credits, and Child Care Tax Deductions. File Electronically, most refunds are returned in just 10 to 14 days, eliminating the need to pay high interest rates associated with many instant refund programs. The Community Investment Fund invests in the most efficient and effective programs conducted by top nonprofits in our city, improving youth success and family stability. Donations from community members fuel this fund, and volunteers drive the decision-making to ensure the donated dollars make the most impact across the region. Experts say that 90% of brain development happens in the first five years of life. The Success by Six initiative funds community partners who target families that live in our most vulnerable parts of the city, ensuring that no family misses out on the educational opportunities that they deserve. Colorado Springs Promise equips students to strive for a better future by promoting education, family involvement, workforce engagement, and family stability. It provides housing services for their families, computers, access to resources, food distributions, mentorship, and career coaching. Colorado Springs Promise is changing the lives of students, offering hope and support. It is championing people at the beginning of their journey to prevent a future of poverty. Dolly Parton's Imagination Library mails a book each month to children birth to age five. It develops an early love of reading, prepares children for success in school, and provides bonding opportunities as parents read to their children. Over 170 community leaders join together to study 12 key components of the quality of life in the Pikes Peak region. The vital program, Pikes Peak Progress Quality of Life Indicators, has been instrumental in helping local government, business, and nonprofits understand our region and identify opportunities for consistent improvement. Pikes Peak United Way makes a big impact in our community. In fact, they've provided tax filing assistance to over 1,100 individuals, enrolled over 2,500 children in high-quality childhood programs, provided nutritious food,
food at food distribution to over 15,000 families, raised $1 million for the COVID-19 relief fund, and given over 1,500 students backpack through the annual Backpack Bash. Are you looking to get involved in Pikes Peak United Way? You can speak out, stay informed, or spread the word. In Speaking Out, our nation's most successful anti-hunger tool, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, is at risk. SNAP helps our neighbors put food on the table, be they a senior living on fixed income, a working mom, or a veteran struggling to get by. Urge your elected officials to protect SNAP in the Farm Bill. Stay informed. In 2018, Pikes Peak United Way's advocacy efforts resulted in the extension of the Child Care Contribution Tax Credit to 2025. Donations to the Child Care Contribution Tax Credit provide continued support for early care and education, before and after school programs, early childhood scholarships, and more. Donors will continue to receive a tax credit. To spread the word, simply connecting and sharing Pikes Peak United Way's material will help them reach new people and raise awareness in our community. Follow Pikes Peak United Way on social media or stay informed through their news and press releases. Pikes Peak United Way doesn't just ask people to give. They work for the common good by advocating positive change to improve the health, education, and financial stability for all members of our community. Join Pikes Peak United Way as they advocate for those in need and they will keep you updated on the issues surrounding our community and offer opportunities to connect with your representatives. You can also donate to the Pikes Peak United Way by visiting ppunitedway.org forward slash i can dash give. So I'm glad to highlight this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week. If you want to hear more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. If you want to find more about the Family Care Center, you can find them online at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They prioritize you and your family with the range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thanks for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you may have or know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed in this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services, our family caring for your family, fcsprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KP. PPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family.